But we're going to do nine weeks together here, unbroken, uh, minus a disaster. We're going to spend nine weeks going through, going through the Gospel of John. And here's why. I'm going to ask you to skip those verses right there. And I want to read John 20, verses 30 and 31 to you. This is the reason why we're studying uh, these miracles or signs out of the Gospel of John. Here's what John writes. John writes this. Let me scoop my chair up so I can actually see the TV, right? It says that Jesus performed many other signs, and that word is important, okay? That Greek word, that Greek word for signs ultimately means pointer, right? It's the idea that it basically illuminates something greater, right? That there is an object to the purpose of this sign. So he says, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, did Jesus perform. Here's the key. And this is why we're studying these signs. Because these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in that, you may have life in his name. Amen? Right? Listen, I, I am a, I am 100% a believer in the power of preaching God's word. I believe that there's, there are, if anything, if there's anything greater than that, I don't know what it is, but I believe that the power of God's word and the preaching of it, along with the promise of the work of the spirit in it is the greatest thing that we get to do when we, when we share our faith with people. There are miracles that happen in the preaching of God's word that take place no other way, right? How else do you describe that John can say these words about miracles that happened 2,000 years ago and today those miracles when preached still save lives eternally? I mean, that's an incredible thing, right? And it'll always be the reason why I believe in the power of preaching God's word. And so that's what we're going to do over the next nine weeks. We're going to study this. And here's just a reminder, John 21 in verse 25, John writes these words. He said, Jesus did many other things as well. So these aren't it, right? When you read through the gospel of John, this isn't it. We're going to cover eight of them, okay? Eight signs are given in the gospel of John. He says, but Jesus did many others as well. He said, if every one of the things that Jesus did, these signs, were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written about it. It's crazy, right? I mean, I think I'm busy sometimes, right? That if Jesus's miracles and signs were written down, the world couldn't contain the number of books that would have to be written. I, I think that's, I think that's incredible. So we're going to start where John starts. We're going to start in John chapter two, and we are going to talk about Jesus turning water into wine. I thought maybe somebody would clap for that, right? And I realized as I prepared this series in this text, I have never preached about Jesus turning water into wine. Never once have I, have I talked about that miracle. And so I'm looking forward to it. So if you guys don't mind standing, we're going to read these first 11 verses of John chapter 2 together. 
this miracle that takes place in Cana of Galilee. This was where we named our daughter Cana from. It's the only time it's mentioned in scripture. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Cana is probably four, four and a half miles south and west of Nazareth. Okay, And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside. And said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You can be seated. All right. 30 minutes, we're going to get through this miracle of water into wine, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can clap, right? I I asked Elijah, the only question I asked Elijah was when he got done. And of course, you know, he set the bar way too high and got out on time. So, so listen, again, we're going to spend nine weeks here because of what John said. These have been written so that you will believe That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's an apologetic idea to these miracles, right? There are, these are evidences of Jesus proving who he says he is. And there's evangelistic component to it because it says, and then when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you can have eternal life or life in his name. And so we're going to walk through these miracles. And my hope is that if one, if you're here, if you're watching online, that if you don't know Jesus and you've not accepted Jesus and haven't believed in Jesus, that God through these signs can do just that. Or if you have believed and your belief has waned, this season has taken a toll on you and your hope is diminishing as well. That this can be a season of refreshing that God reminds you that your faith in Jesus is in the right place. And that you can be encouraged through that, right? These signs are pointers. They point to something bigger. We live in a culture today that absolutely makes the miraculous the point of the whole thing, right? There are churches today who would do nothing, do nothing, but convince you that only thing that God cares about is the miraculous show every time we gather. Because for them, the most important part of God's expression is to make sure that his miraculous is always on display. That was never the reason for Jesus doing the miraculous. The reason for Jesus to do miraculous has always been to point to something greater. 
Unfortunately, many charlatans who preach the word of God in miraculous form do just that as well. They point the miraculous to themselves. That's heresy. Jesus pointed to something greater than the miracle. Do we believe that God performs miracles? Of course, every day, many of which we never ever see or ever will know, right? We don't question whether God's in the miraculous. The question is, what's the miraculous for? These eight give us that thing. Jesus starts with John 2 and the miracle of water into wine. And so the questions that I'm going to ask are, what does this sign point to? And so for this, for this, this miracle, the first sign is this. The sign, the sign is a sign of compassion. It's a sign of compassion. Listen to what Jesus said in John 2, 1 through 3, right? It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Why is that a big deal? Well, listen, it doesn't take much for any of you to go do some digging about the Jewish culture, right? But the reality is that the culture in Jesus' day, a wedding was a big deal, right? It's a big deal today, but it was a bigger deal to them, right? I'm going to read some, I'm just going to read a little bit of the ex. Excerpts, there we go, of what some Jewish writer said about the importance of a wedding in that culture. Leon Morris is one of them, and he says this according to the to the Mishnah, the wedding would take place on a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin, and on a Thursday if she was a widow. The bridegroom and his friends made their way in procession to the bride's house. This was often done at night where there could be a spectacular torchlight procession. You know, we think we perfected weddings in 2021. These people had it down, right? So they take this procession. It says there were doubtless, there were doubtless speeches and expressions of goodwill before the bride and the groom went in procession to the groom's house where the wedding banquet was held. It is probable that there was a religious ceremony, but we have no details. The processions and the feast are the principal items of which we have knowledge. The feast was prolonged and would have lasted as long as a week. A week they would celebrate, right? We talk about having a birthday week or a birthday month. Listen, the Jews knew how to celebrate a wedding, right? And here's the key. The responsibility to pay for and take care of everything that the, that the wedding feast would include was the responsibility of the bridegroom, right? Not the bride to pay for the wedding, the bridegroom. Why? Because the bridegroom in that culture needed to prove to the father of the bride-to-be that he could take care of her, that he could provide for her. And so the bridegroom was responsible for all the food and all the drink and everything that went with a one week celebration about that wedding. That's expensive. Would you agree with that? Took a lot, right? And maybe as one commentator suggested, the reason that they ran out of wine at this wedding was because it was an indication of how limited in funds they actually were. 
They didn't have the ability financially to provide all of that. And in a culture where drinking unpurified water was a potential danger, wine without getting drunk was a much better option. But here we are in a Jewish custom, right, which is potentially into the midpoint of a week, and we're out of wine. And not only out of wine, the bridegroom who's supposed to pay for it and convince his future father-in-law that he can care for this woman is now standing there with egg on his face, a social disgrace. Listen to what some commentators said about what happens when you run out of food or drink at these places. It said this may indicate that they were poor and had made the minimum provision for hoping for the best. Another commentator, another Jewish commentator said to fail in providing adequately for the guest would involve social disgrace. In the closely knit communities of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all their lives. Boyce writes this. Additionally, rabbis of that day considered wine a symbol of joy. Therefore, to run out of wine would almost certainly have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guest nor the bride and the groom were happy. And then Morris says this. In the Near East, in the ancient Near East, there was a strong element of reciprocity about weddings. And that, for example, it was possible. Listen to this. This is crazy. It was possible to take legal action in certain circumstances against the bridegroom who had failed to provide the appropriate wedding gift. It means that when the supply of wine failed, more than social embarrassment was involved. The bridegroom, as his family, may well have become involved in a heavy, heavy liability suit. It was a big deal. That phrase, when the wine was gone... Man, that thing carries a lot of weight with what was happening in Jesus' day, right? There was a lot on the line. This sign is a sign of the compassion of Jesus. Was it necessary? Listen, I don't want to get too personal here, but if you go to a wedding and they run out of wine, is it the end of the world? No, right? Was this, was this miracle? Was this miracle? Let me just say this. I can see your faces, right? So, so, and I have great peripheral vision. So when I ask a question, is it the end of the world? I'm watching your reactions. And some of you were looking around like, yes, it is, right? I'm, I've got a keen sense of observation up here, right? Listen, the, the reality was this was not a miracle of necessity. People weren't being overrun by demons here. Right? There wasn't a man who was blind. There wasn't a man who was crippled. Right? There wasn't a woman with an issue of blood. This was not a miracle that was necessary for the well-being and the common good of the people. So why did Jesus perform it? I believe that first and foremost that Jesus performed it as a sign of compassion. Because here's what we know about Jesus. Listen to these verses in Luke chapter 7 and Matthew 9 and Matthew 14. Luke 7 says, when the Lord saw her, you can go back and read the story. His heart went out to her, said, don't cry. That phrase, his heart went out to her, is the Greek word for compassion. He had compassion on her and he said to her, don't cry. How about Matthew 9, 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. It took Jesus seeing to have compassion. 
Compassion is a result of anything other than seeing what's going on in front of you. Jesus saw them and had compassion. It says this in Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. I could go on and on and on. The Greek word for compassion is the Greek word viscera, right? It's this idea that there's this visceral, right? There's this tangible, noticeable gut feeling, right, that you have toward people. It's the idea of our, of our bowels, of, of the heart and the lungs and the things that make us who we are. Here's what it says. That part of Jesus was moved toward people. Why did Jesus turn water into wine when it wasn't a matter of life and death? Because he had compassion. It's a sign of the compassion of Jesus and that he has on people. And why is that good news to me and you? For one verse, this verse right here, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. This is why I think it's important for you and I to be reminded of the power of this sign. It's a sign of compassion. Why does that matter to you? Because the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, one who intercedes to God on our behalf, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith faith that we profess. For we don't have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The reality is, I don't know about you, I need a savior who's compassionate. I, I, I need somebody who's going to, I need somebody who's going to look at me in the middle of my mess and the middle of my struggles and isn't going to shake his head at me and go, listen, it's your own fault. You knew better. All you had to do was listen. I, 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 listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I need a savior who has some compassion and who can empathize with my struggles and knowing that my savior was tempted in every way and didn't sin and didn't turn him into a self-righteous judgmental savior. I thank God for that every day. I'm thankful that the knowledge that Jesus has about our struggle as humans simply made him compassionate, right? Listen, part of our responsibility to the world around us is to exercise that compassion toward the people that we meet. Listen, I don't, I'm too old to be, to, to be a person that's full of condemnation. And I'm way too messed up to be a person of condemnation. But I have a lot of disappointment in the fact that the church of Jesus Christ made compassionate being compassionate to people unimportant in the battle for truth. I've always been disappointed by that. Listen, I love truth. I love it. I went to Bible college and studied God's word at a college that, that hammered it into us, the importance of God's word. I love God's word and the truth that it stands for. But I love our Savior more. I love our Savior more because it's my Savior who loves me. It's my Savior who died for me. It's my Savior who sees me. It's my Savior who ultimately rescues me. This book points to Jesus. Amen? Listen, we get to be compassionate. We get to be a part of that. I didn't mention the offering tonight earlier because I wanted to do it here. Listen, we support all kinds of people all over the globe doing all kinds of crazy things in God's name. And most of them Joe brings to your attention, right? And you guys are 
You guys are amazing at what at what level of commitment and buy-in you do with that. And we support, we support church planners, we support missionaries, we support compassion ministries as well. And you get to do that tonight. So whether you're online or whether you're in here, we've got buckets at the back of the room. You can text to give. You can give through the church center app. You can give online. There's a multitude of ways to give, right? You get a chance to do that tonight to a ministry of compassion. Pastor Ben Brown has been on our staff for several years now. Pastor Ben oversees our Tuesday church and is currently uh, working in Deland as our campus pastor over there as well. His son, three and a half years ago, stepped out in faith and moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil to begin the work that he believed that God had called him. And I don't know what you know about Brazil or Sao Paulo, but Sao Paulo is one of the largest cities in the entire world. And it's one of the poorest in the entire world. There is poverty there beyond what most of us can even comprehend, right? God called him there and he answered the call and he's been there for three and a half years. And there was a season where Ben had no idea why he was there. No idea what he was doing. No idea how to help those people because the need was overwhelming. But Ben finally got it in his head. Do for one what you want to do for all. And when he began to put that principle into practice, God began to open a door of ministry to him in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Today, after three and a half years of starting with one, right? He now has a ministry called Be New that spans four countries, three of which are in Africa. And they are now ministering to several hundred families and individuals, right? In that community, right? By taking food and clothing, they, they, they go to the hospitals with them. They take them to appointments. The, if you do a little research on the bus, just the bus schedule in Sao Paulo, you'll realize how complicated it is for people to get anywhere through that bus system. They have a ministry where they pick people up and they take people to appointments. But at the end of the day, it's a ministry of compassion. And he reached out to us and he says, here's what we need. The little, the little car that we started with is now headed to the junkyard because it no longer can service us. And even though it was too small to begin with, it was better than nothing. And now they have nothing. And a large part of their ministry has come to a complete stop because they can't get to the communities of people that they now serve. We're going to take up an offering tonight to help them buy a new vehicle. We're going to help them buy a replacement vehicle that has quit working in Sao Paulo because a large percentage of being new ministry that Ben and his wife deal with, deal with the need for a vehicle. So whether you're online or whether you're in here, we're going to ask you, listen, every penny that we collect will go directly to the purchase of a vehicle in Brazil for that ministry. They need, Joe's always good at this, they need $9,500, Right? And so I'm just going to lay that out there for you and God to work on. But we're going to do everything we can to help them get a, minist- get a vehicle for the ministry. And why? Why? Because Jesus, Jesus is compassionate. And those ministries that serve based upon the compassion of Jesus, they need our support. Amen, church? Amen. All right. How about this? It's also a sign of separation. A sign of separation. This is interesting to me. 
So here's what, here's what happens in the text, right? So there's no wine, right? Big deal socially, lots of embarrassment, potential legal liability. Jesus out of compassion steps in. Grateful we have a savior who's compassionate toward us. But look at verse four. Here's Jesus' response, okay? This is, of course, this is our English translation. Woman, why do you involve me? In the Greek, the phrase is this. What, what to me and to you? Those are the Greek words that are used here, used there. Basically, what Jesus is saying this. Okay, we're out of wine. What business is that of mine and yours? Woman, why do you involve me? What to you and to me? My hour he says, has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I did teach this. I did teach this miracle in my group. And I talked about how the Bible's human. That I found it sort of encouraging, I guess, that Jesus, a 30-some-year-old man, was confronted by his mom in public to do a miracle, right? And she was so confident in her authority over her son, she just walks away and says, do whatever he says, knowing he's going to do what she asked him to, right? I think I was wrong about that. I think I was, I think I was wrong about that. Let me read some scriptures to you. John 7, this phrase, my hour has not yet come, right? Listen, listen to this. Well, first of all, let me say this. The phrase woman, okay, that same Greek word is used in John 19 when Jesus from the cross says to John, right, woman, he's now going to take care of you, right, that, that I'm transferring that responsibility to him, right? It's not a derogatory term. It is a slight rebuke in the Greek, right? But the phrase means dear woman. Right? It's the idea, not mom. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't use the Greek word mother, mama, right? Mommy, right? He uses the word dear woman. And there's a reason for that. And here's what John 7 says. Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out. And he said, yes, you know me. And you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. At this, the Jews tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. How about this one in in John 8, 19 and 20? They asked him, where's your father? You don't know me or my father. Jesus replied again to the Jews, to the Pharisees. He said, if you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. put. Yet no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 20 and 23. There were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee with their quest. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, listen to this. Not only has my hour not come, my hour has not come. He says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? John 13, 1, Jesus said this. 
It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think this is a miracle of separation. I think this is a miracle designed to communicate to not just Mary, but to everybody around that Jesus, the son of Mary, who did the will of his mother growing up, was now doing the will of his father instead. This was a miracle that marked separation between Jesus' commitments to his mother and now transferring that allegiance and obligation to the authority of his father. Which is why Jesus, here's Mary, when he's done saying to her, woman, dear woman, what to me and to you? And her only response is, just do whatever he, he asks. Her way of acknowledging, you're right. I had a season where as your mother, you listen to me. That season is now over. My job now, Jesus says, is to get to the cross. My job is to get to the cross so that God can be glorified in me. That's what it meant. It was a miracle or a sign marking to those around that Jesus now had one mission and only one. And that was to do the will of his father. And I thought, that applies to us, right? That applies to us. Listen to what John 15, 16 through 20 says. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, just doing nothing but irritating the church leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Why? For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Listen, at some point in time, the reason that Jesus came was not honor Mary. The reason that Jesus came was to honor his father. Right? It was a sign of separation. What about you and me? Listen, our world is changing. Many of people, many people in my generation feel it. Many people in the generations below me are grateful for it. But there's a lot of change going on in our world. And as a guy who has children and grandchildren, some of those changes can make a person feel a little unsettled. Right? There are lots of of human relationships that dictate our life from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. And they matter to us. I look around this room and I, 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 can, see, I can see how your life changed in 2020. Some of you based upon a human relationship, an addition, a subtraction. Whatever it was, I can see how it affected your life. And human relationships matter a great deal to us. Listen to what Jesus says about the need... For separation 
in those relationships at times. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And how about these words in Luke 14, 33? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Well, so I think it was a hugely important step for Jesus to take publicly to start his ministry so that Mary heard and that those around him heard. My job has changed. My job is no longer to do the will of my mother when she comes to me and says, Hey, Jesus, right? We're out of wine. I mean, listen, there's only one reason she asked Jesus because they were out of wine because she knew he could what? He could fix it. I mean, listen, he never gave her bad advice growing up, did he? Right? I mean, the guy's ideas were always perfect. You get that, right? Because he was God. Like, are you there? Right? So when she, she had a problem, she went to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you need to, you need to fix this. Right? And you know what he said? Woman, what is that to me? And what is that to you? My hour has not yet come. My focus now is to do the will of my father and not your will. My focus is the mission. My focus is to get to the place where God is glorified in me. Why? Because God's always at work. And because of that, I'm always at work. What does Jesus say to us today and about a sign of separation? He says this, if you want to be my disciple... You can't love mother or father more than me. You can't love son or daughter more than me. You can't love anything you have more than me. You need to switch the order of allegiance. Right? Listen, we have lots of things in this world that we love. And lots of people in this world that we love. But if our love for them is greater than our love for God, it's hard to be a disciple. It's just hard. Jesus said it. You can't have two masters, right? It gets complicated. So I think this was a sign not only of compassion. I think this was a sign of separation. Signifying that Jesus' allegiance to Mary had ended. His responsibility to her as his son had changed. And his responsibility was now to do the will of God his Father. And we know that because at some point in time in the gospel of John, Jesus's brothers and his mother show up and somebody comes to Jesus in the house and says, Hey, your mom and kids, your mom and siblings are outside. And he looks around the room and says, these now are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Why? Because his will, his will was to do the will of his father going forward. What about you? Right? You've accepted Jesus. You've believed in him. Do you now have in your mind, hey, my responsibility is to the father and to do his will, to do the mission that he has put me on more importantly than anything else. Those are, listen, it's a sign of separation. And then lastly, it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of authority. Verses six through 10 say this. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Why did they fill them to the brim? Because Jesus didn't want anybody to say, well, he just added wine to the water, right? So you fill them to the brim so nothing else can be added. And then they told him, now, now then he told them, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. And though the servants who had drawn it, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. The master, right? The head waiter calls the bridegroom because the bridegroom has been told we're out of wine, right? And now the master, the head waiter, right? The maitre d', right? The head servant goes to the bridegroom and says, um, question, statement. Usually what happens in these shindigs is you let everybody get a little bit saucy. And then you bring out the bad stuff and in with the cheap. He says, you've done it the other way around. You ended up waiting till all the cheap stuff was gone. And now you've brought out the good stuff, right? Everyone brings it out. He said, much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Listen, here's what Genesis, Genesis 1, 3 says. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And you can go through the account of Genesis and you're going to read this phrase over and over again. And God said, and God said, and God said, Colossians one says it this way. The son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation for in him that is in Jesus, all things were created things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible. He says, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And then in John one, John writes these words, in the beginning was the word, listen to this, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him. That's through the word. And God said, and God said, and God said, he says through him, through the word, all things were what? Made, made without him. Nothing was made that has been made in him was life. That light or that life was the light of all mankind. Listen, at the end of the day, this is a miracle of authority. It's a miracle representing the authority that the word of God in human form had over all creation, right? Look at that. I'm on my third point and the alarm goes off. We're in good shape, right? At the end of the day, yes, I believe with all my heart, there's compassion to be seen in here. There's a human element that I think is Un, that's impossible to miss that Jesus performs a miracle that's not of necessity to help save the embarrassment of this bridegroom. I cannot overlook that. And I am grateful that Jesus is a savior with compassion. I think it's a sign of separation. I think it clearly indicates to us that at some point in time, following the will of God puts other relationships in a secondary position. It's why, it's why Paul said, listen, when you get married, it's going to be complicated because when you're married, you're going to think of the concerns of your spouse before the concerns of God. Anybody in here got the courage to say amen, right? That's true. It happens, right? 
Those are realities that we face. It's a sign of separation because at some point in time, following the, the will of God requires that. But at the end of the day, this is ultimately a sign of authority. The authority that Jesus, Jesus, the name Jesus is given to the boy who grows into a man who is fully God and fully human. It was not and is not his name in heaven. The name of Jesus in heaven is the word of God. That's his name. In his true form, he is, and God said, and God said. He is the power behind everything that has ever been created. And he is the force behind holding it all together. That's who Jesus is in his true form. When Jesus told the servants to fill those cement water pots with water, ultimately what he was doing was having a sign of authority to show people around that it was exactly who he said he was, the Messiah, the sent one of God, the son of the living God. Listen to what this scientist, this scientist who wasn't a Christian says about this miracle. He says at a molecular level, the water, basically hydrogen and oxygen, was charged, was changed into wine that contained sugars, yeast, and water, which contained carbon and nitrogen along with oxygen and hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrated his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. The amount of energy it would take to perform this atomic deconstruction and reconstruction is staggering. He goes on to say, intermolecular energy being released is the source of the explosive energy from an atomic bomb. However, since Jesus caused the wine atoms to come back together, he would have to put this astronomical amount of energy into the atom in order to have them reconstruct. To do so without any visible energy transformation of the liquid. John does not say anything about the people noticing the transformation. Indicates a mastery of natural law far beyond our current comprehension And he accomplished it with no physical exertion. Pretty amazing, right? Listen, at the end of the day, the purpose of this miracle or the sign of this miracle, it's the sign of the authority of who Jesus is. And that's going to be a theme that's carried throughout, throughout the gospel of John. And here's the question. Is that authority that Jesus exhibits as the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who can turn water into wine, does that authority extend to you? Does it extend to me? Because at the end of the day, I'm grateful for a compassionate Savior. And I'm grateful for the knowledge that at some point in time, Jesus changed trajectory and focused on the will of his Father because that cross means everything to me. But for me and for you in 2021, where does the authority of Jesus lie with you? What does it apply to in your life? Is it just something to to throw around in a conversation with your non-believing friends about truth? And one day you're going to get your comeuppance and one day you're going to see? 
Or is it something that you live by? Is it something that you surrender to? Is it something that you hold dear when it comes to this Jesus? Jesus turned water into wine. I think he ultimately did it as a sign of authority. That he was here and that he was exactly who he said he was. And that when we believe in him, we can have eternal life. So every Wednesday we're going to do this, whether you're online or here. We're going to offer you a chance to make that decision. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to come down off the stage. If there's anybody here that wants to surrender to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, we want to help you with that. If you're online and you want that to happen, there's a button there that says, I have decided. You simply click that button and you'll be in contact with one of our pastors who will speak directly to you about that. But we're going to make sure that every week we offer this invitation because here's what John wrote. He said, these have been written so that you'll believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And that in believing Jesus and who he says he is, you can have life and have it eternal. So let's pray. Father, thank you for... I thank you for this book. I thank you for these eyewitness accounts that have been passed down and protected for generations. No book, no book in the history of mankind has ever withstood as much scrutiny as your book. And yet here it stands. Not only does it still stand, it still changes eternities for people. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the case as we study it. You tell us that your word doesn't return void. It accomplishes what it set out to accomplish. You tell us that your spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. So, Father, would you do that as we study your word? Would you bring that conviction to the hearts of men and women? And, Father, in that conviction, would you lead them to the knowledge that you're exactly who you said you were? You did exactly what you said you would do. And that when we put our belief in you, you can and will save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.